All right, as you're making your way to Genesis chapter 48, I want you to make a pit stop towards the end of your Bible in Hebrews chapter 11. I know, it's a little bit of a detour from Genesis, close to the back of the Bible. Hebrews chapter 11, we'll look at one verse as we begin together, verse 21, because uh, this tells us that the writer to Hebrews, to the Hebrew Christians there that were facing such persecution as they were, uh, looked at this moment as the one moment in the life of Jacob that needed highlighting in the Hall of Faith. Hebrews chapter 11 and verse number 21, we read these words together. By faith, Jacob, when he was a dying, that's Genesis 48 and 49 and 50, right where we are in our studies. By faith, how was it? It was by faith, Jacob, when he was a dying, blessed both the sons of Joseph, yes, that is Genesis chapter 48, blessed both the sons of Joseph and worshipped, leaning upon the top of his staff. Lord, I pray that you would help us to understand that our life is but a vapor, and that one day, if you tarry your coming, as we continue to grow older, we too uh, will come to the end, like Jacob is here. But Father, may we understand the faith that he has, and may that impact us to know that even when we're absent from the body and present with you, there is something that we can do here and now, uh, by faith, Lord, observing your hand in our life to be able to pass on the baton of faith and pass the torch of faith to the next and the following generations. Lord, I pray that you would uh, stir our hearts tonight to be concerned for what's happening around us and to be actively engaged and involved in, in passing the faith that you have shown us from your word on to those that need it most. Lord, I pray that you might even change someone's family tree tonight as we consider your word and how powerful it is. Father, I pray your blessing upon this time in your word. In Jesus' name, amen. 2003, the Tour de France uh, was a centennial event of the famous bicycle race. And around that race, of course, I remember I was in college at that time. And yes, uh, everybody was focusing on Lance Armstrong and all of the stuff that was going on about him. And <laughs> maybe you remember the headlines. I won't give it away. You can look it up if you want to and Google it and you'll find out he was in some trouble at that time. But while everyone was focusing on uh, Lance Armstrong, who ended up with his fifth consecutive victory, yeah, <laughs> there was an hour-long celebration of the event's history followed by a race. And past winners uh, rode by the cheering crowds. And so uh, maybe you didn't pick up on all that was going on because of everything that got drowned out with what was going around Lance, uh, Lance Armstrong. So a pungent moment came, according to one article, just before the parade began. An older man on, a bi on an ancient bicycle, now, I don't know what an ancient bicycle looks like, but I would guess it had a big front tire or something like that. You know, I, there, There's actually a, a statue of one over in Brighton, over by the Armory, if you ever get over there, you can see one. There's uh, some kids that are running, and there's a dad that's doing a bicycle race there on a big front tire bicycle like they used to make back in the day. And so uh, this, this older man was on this ancient bicycle, and he was to ride at the head of the parade, and right next to him, by his side, was a young boy on a small modern bike. And this was to symbolize a sort of uh, passing of the torch, if you will, from one generation of cyclists to the next. 
And one photograph even showed the two riders as they were waiting for the signal to begin the parade. The older man is gently resting his hand on the child's shoulder as if he's going to encourage him for what lies ahead in the race. And so as we look at Genesis chapter number 48 tonight, I want you to have that kind of in, in your mind. Here we see Jacob at the end of his days, and uh, he is not ready to throw in the towel on what the Lord has promised to his granddad. And so this really is a momentous time uh, to, to be memorialized in Genesis 48 and 49. So here you have the grandson passing faith to his grandchildren. Abraham's grandson now blessing Joseph's children, Ephraim and Manasseh, passing it on to that generation. And so in between was Isaac, and in between was Joseph, right? And Abraham was the father of the Jewish people. He's the father of faith, and we are children of Abraham by faith, and we are grafted in as Gentiles into all those spiritual blessings that we have in Christ, the filling and dwelling of the Holy Spirit. And we are looking forward to that day when God will make all of the promises He, he said to Abraham come true. And Israel will receive the physical blessings of having the, from the Nile to the Euphrates and that whole tract of land. And Jesus Christ will rule and reign from the throne of David in Jerusalem. All of that is yet to come to pass. And so we get to ride on the coattails of spiritual giants as we consider Jacob's words tonight. I trust that they will resonate with you and they will ring in your heart and life that you'll understand God has you in a place in your life where you can impact someone else for the faith. And what God has promised in His Word, though we understand the distinction between the nation of Israel and the church of Jesus Christ, of which we are a part of in that age, and we understand the physical blessings belong to Israel, the spiritual blessings, we get to partake of those. We understand the distinction there, and yes, I am a dispensationalist, and our doctrine here at the church is a dispensational doctrine. And I'm not a hyper-dispensationalist, and I don't swing too far to one pendulum side or the other. I'm not a Calvinist. Uh, but I do think John Calvin had some good things to say about some areas of faith and practice, but I don't believe in tulip or any of that nature. I'm a dispensationalist, and I believe that we're in an age of grace. And one day, everything that God prophesied about uh, Israel's return to the land will be consummated. Now, understanding that, we also can see, just as God made promises to Israel, has He not made promises to us as followers of Jesus Christ? As Israel looked for the promised land, and Jacob points that out, and the renewal of that covenant promise, even here, do we not look for a city whose builder and maker is God? Do we not press on towards the prize for the high calling in Christ Jesus? Do we not also try to forget that which is behind and press toward that mark? Yes, and we look forward to the promises that God has made to us. So without convoluting the two and winding up as a covenant theologian, uh, we look at them and see that there's application application to be made, not interpretation. The church has not replaced Israel, but the application comes to us because as we see Jacob exercising his faith and impacting his grandchildren, I think about the faith that was given to me from my granddad. And maybe you don't have that kind of legacy. Well... There's no better time to start than now. And you can pass that legacy of faith that goes all the way back to the garden, all the way back to the beginning. In the beginning, 
God created the heavens. You can take that faith even now and open the Word of God and learn that faith. The faith that was once delivered unto the saints. The faith that unifies us all here tonight. The faith that is centered around and revolves around the work of Jesus Christ on Calvary. Old Testament and New Testament both complementing and completing each other for the final and full revelation of our God to us. Our Creator who made us to worship Him and to have pleasure with us and fellowship with us. And all those promises that we read can be ours through Christ which strengtheneth us. And so as we think about passing the torch. Sometimes the torch is passed intentionally. Sometimes it's passed voluntarily. Sometimes a torch can be forcefully taken. Sometimes the passing, well, it just kind of naturally happens without much thought as people drift through the natural cycle of life. The passing happens in families. The passing happens in businesses. The passing of that, of that torch happens in churches and members of all generations need godly wisdom as they play out the drama, if you will, of changing roles, changing, uh, passing that torch, and knowing that one day others will stand where we stand now, and we pray and trust that they will stand on the same moorings and the same foundation that we stood on for generations to come. So while Jacob was passing the torch of his faith to his grandchildren, he gave them an inheritance of God's promises. One of the best things that you can leave for those coming behind you is the Word of God and the promises of this book. We always want to think about leaving an inheritance to our children's children, and uh, that means we need to have a lot of money in the bank to give them, right? Hey, can I tell you, you have one of the most precious things that you can give to your family right here. A legacy of faith. There's no greater inheritance than the Word of God to be able to see them have that in their life. The best inheritance we can leave to our children's children is to pass on the faith of God's Word. And I hope to be able to stir you up a little bit tonight in light of our life being but a vapor, according to James chapter number 4. I hope you'll have, a, have enough of a heart to desire to be involved and engaged in somebody's life enough that it just might change their family tree as you pass faith, the faith once delivered to the saints, on to them. Leading a legacy of faith includes some things. It includes what I see from Jacob acknowledging God's involvement along our path. Now, we may not always observe it being there. We sing that hymn that's titled, The Unseen Hand. But as hindsight's twenty twenty, Jacob looks back over the corridors of his life and he sees the hand of God Almighty. And so as we pass this legacy of faith, it's going to take some acknowledging of God's involvement along our path. It's going to take some realizing of His promises and, and sharing those promises and communicating those promises to the generation to come. Promises for a future day. Promises of a better hope that we have in Jesus Christ that we're all looking forward to, whether it's through the rapture or the grave or the coming of Christ, when He rules and reigns this earth, we yearn for that peace. We yearn for that day when all will be under His care and He will have come back just as He promised and taken us to be with Him and 
as we pass on this legacy, it not only involves looking at God's uh, place and His part in our, in our path along the way, His promises for the future, but also His presence that as a child of God, uh, we are given precious promises that the Lord will never leave us nor forsake us, and He is with us right now as we continue our journey. And as He's with us, He can also be with those that we would seek to impact for the faith. They can know His presence. Leaving a legacy of faith. Acknowledging God's involvement along our path. Looking at His promises for our future. And knowing His presence in our present. Proverbs chapter 20, verse 7 says, The just man walketh in his integrity, and his children are blessed after him. A just man, one who understands what true justice really is, walketh in his integrity, continual, E-T-H, he walketh in his integrity. doesn't speak of sinless perfection. It speaks of righteousness that comes from God and comes through the knowledge of God. A just man walketh in his integrity. His children are blessed after him. We ride on the coattails of those that fought ahead of us for justice and righteousness. William Wilberforce, for example. John Newton. You can thank those men, those preachers of God's Word, uh, much for the abolishment of slavery as we knew at one time in this country. And so, as we look at those kind of uh, heroes of the faith that were persecuted and ridiculed and mocked and run out of Parliament and run out of Congress in their days, and everyone... Everyone seemed to be against them. Now people are free because of the work they did in getting people to understand the truth of the Son of God that sets people free. If the Son make you free, you shall be free indeed. Proverbs 13.22 says, A good man leaveth an inheritance to his children's children, and the wealth of the sinner is laid up for the just. Notice as we look at Genesis 48, I draw your attention to the center portion uh, of the passage, well, maybe about two-thirds of the way through. I want you to look and read with me out loud verses 15 and 16, and then let's work from there and get the surrounding context even uh, back into chapter 47. You to look a little bit at what was going on there. But Genesis chapter 48, read out loud with me if you would, verse 15 and 16 together. Let's read together out loud. Join me now. And he blessed Joseph and said, God, before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac did walk, the God which fed me all my life long unto this day, the angel which redeemed me from all evil, bless the lads, and let my name be named on them, and the name of my fathers Abraham and Isaac, and let them grow into a multitude in the midst of the earth. Notice first off, that there is an adoption and an acceptance that is seen in this passage, uh, really leading up to what will become a double portion. So a double portion, adopted and accepted. We see as the chapter opens, there's a gathering that happens by Papa's bedside. And this is the time when Joseph hears that Jacob is sick, and he brings Ephraim and Manasseh to come and have some final moments with Granddad before they have to say a final goodbye and lay Granddad to rest. This is a time that uh, is woven through with sorrow. Yes, we understand that, but it's a time where we get to see Jacob shine like we've never seen him shine in his life up to this point. And so Jacob is in a, in a particular place and uh, gathering by Papa's bedside. Uh, James Dobson wrote a book, What Wives Wish Their Husbands Knew About Women. I haven't read it, and I probably won't. 
Okay. <laughs> In there, he said, you know, I love this perceptive essay by a third grade girl. Okay, this is third grade little girl. And she's writing this essay. And, uh, and so it's called, she entitled this essay, What's a Grandmother? And she went on to say this, A grandmother is a lady who has no children of her own. She likes other people's little boys and girls. A grandfather is a man-grandmother. <laughs> he goes for walks with the boys, and they talk about fishing and stuff like that. <laughs> Grandmothers don't have anything to do except to be there. They're so old, they, they shouldn't play hard or run. It's enough if they drive us to the market where the pretend horse is and have a lot of dimes ready. Or if they take us for walks, they should slow down past things like pretty leaves and caterpillars. They should never say, hurry up. Usually grandmothers are fat. Now this third grade girl, okay, I didn't say that. She's read, this is her essay, I'm reading what she wrote. But not too fat to tie your shoes. <laughs> they wear glasses and funny underwear. They can take their teeth and gums off. <laughs> Grandmothers don't have to be smart. Only answer questions like, Why isn't God married? What? Or, How come dogs chase cats? Grandmothers, they don't talk baby talk like visitors do. Because it's hard to understand. When they read to us, they don't skip or mind if it's the same story over again. Everybody should try to have a grandmother, especially if you don't have television. They're the only grown-ups who have time. Yeah. As we think about Jacob hearing that Joseph's on his way. He's bringing the grandkids. He's bringing, these are the grandchildren that he thought he'd never even have because he thought Joseph was dead. He says right here in this passage, I didn't ever think I would see your face. I never thought I'd ever even see you, let alone I've only seen you. God's allowed me to see your children, my grandchildren. This is, this is powerful. As we look at this meeting together, they're gathering by Papa's bedside, and he's getting ready to pass the baton. Uh, Dalich, in his commentary, he remarked this, and I quote, The interchange of the names, Jacob and Israel, is not, anywhere, is not everywhere so significant as here. And what he's pointing out is what you see in verse number 2. Somebody told Jacob, and said, Behold, thy son Joseph cometh to thee. Look at the words here. And Israel strengthened himself and sat upon the bed. Jacob hears, but it's Israel who gets the strength to sit up. That's the point that Dalich was making. And I think that's a wise observation, the interchange between the names. Jacob and Israel, it's the same person. But here, Israel... Uh, draws that strength that Jacob was given uh, as he was renamed that by God. As a prince, you have power with God. And so where does Jacob, in his 
old age, sitting on his bed here in his decrepit state with his eyes dim and, and seeing the end of his physical strength and, and looking, looking at all that's going on, he strengthens himself as Israel. And I believe this was the hand of God that moved and raised him up and allowed him the strength to be able to sit on his bed and as the writer of Hebrews said, worship on his staff. He's giving glory to God here. And he remembers God's goodness. We look at verses 3 and 4 and we see what he says. As he sits upon the bed, Jacob said unto Joseph, note these words, God Almighty. That is El Shaddai. We studied that name for God all the way back when we were learning about Abraham. And in that section of Genesis, the first time that we saw that was back when the covenant promises were given. So he begins right away by by calling Him God Almighty. And that's from cover to cover in your Bible. One day, uh, as we studied in Revelation, this is going to come to fruition. Think about it. The wrath of the Lamb. Uh, What an oxymoron is that? When, When have you ever seen a lamb be wrathful? Maybe when he tried to headbutt his whoever was in the pen with No, you don't think about a lamb being wrathful. But the Lord Jesus Christ one day will pour His wrath out on sin and on this earth, and He will establish His reign and His rule. And so He is God Almighty. He is El Shaddai. He is the all-powerful, the omnipotent God of heaven. And Jacob here is remembering God's goodness to him. He says... This is the God, Elohim, El, excuse me, El Shaddai. He appeared unto me at Luz in the land of Canaan and blessed me. He goes back to that moment when he was running for his life. Where is Luz, you you ask? Well, if you go back and read the story of Jacob or recall what we've studied together about him, he renamed that place, and so it's interesting to me. He's using the old name because that's what it was when he showed up there, but he renamed that place Bethel. And that's where he met with God. And God first appeared to him back in Genesis chapter 28 and renewed the covenant promise with him personally. He says, it was God Almighty. Just like he showed up to my granddaddy, he showed up to me. And I pray that one day, if the Lord tarries long enough and blesses my wife and I with grandchildren someday, that they'll be able to say it was God Almighty. The same, the same God that my granddaddy told me about, I'd love for them one day to be telling others about the same God, God Almighty. Abraham's long gone off the scene, and Jacob here is passing that faith on to Ephraim and Manasseh. And we don't know much about Ephraim and Manasseh apart from what's recorded in the history of Israel. What do you know about Ephraim? What happened to him? Who is he? Do we have a whole you know, a Bible biography book on Ephraim? No, we don't. But I think that there's some ways that we can observe and see that he did get the faith of Jacob. This is an Egyptian boy. Uh, this is, uh, you know, this is the son of Asenath, and Asenath's, you know, Asenath's dad was a priest for Egypt. I mean, he was a pagan priest, and here Jacob, without any hesitation, claims this boy as his own in the faith of Israel, and makes no qualms about doing that, even though he's of mixed birth. He's Joseph's son. And by that, uh, he's welcomed into the family of faith here. And so we don't get saved by birth apart from the new birth. 
And so if we're born again through Jesus Christ, we can see the kingdom of God. And God welcomes each of us with open arms. The ground is level at the cross. And we can all come to our God by faith through Jesus Christ. And Joseph had that faith in God. And Ephraim and Manasseh would have both been given that faith. Maybe I should say Manasseh and Ephraim. That might help us keep them straight in our head in the Bible. Because Manasseh is the older one, right? Ephraim's the younger one. We'll talk about that here in a moment. If, uh, if you've ever gone through the handfuls on purpose, uh, that's a great resource. I've had it for years. Uh, I had a pastor give that to me. And, and uh, if, if you're ever involved in ministry, that's a go-to resource. If you ever need outlines or studies or different things of that nature. In there, uh, they made some comments about this verse, just some brief ones. And it pointed out something that I hadn't observed directly that I was thankful to see. In Genesis 47, verse number 9, if you turn back and read there, this was the account of Jacob sitting before Pharaoh. And remember the account of his life that he gave Pharaoh? You remember what he told Pharaoh? He said, my life has been a few days, right? He says, I haven't lived that long. Basically, I'm paraphrasing. And he says, it's been nothing but trouble. If I read verse, uh, verse number 9, he said, Jacob said to Pharaoh, the days of my years, of the years of my pilgrimage are in 130 years. Few and evil have the days of the years of my life been, and I have not attained into the days of the years of the life of my fathers in the days of their pilgrimage. And Jacob blessed Pharaoh. And uh, Smith went on to point out here that there were two estimates that were given by Jacob. You see in Genesis 47, verse number 9, comparing that with verse number 15. Uh, I would also say here what we read in verse number 3, uh, and following would also account for that. But in verse 15, we read it out loud together. He said, he blessed Joseph and said, God, before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac did walk, the God which fed me all my life long unto this day, the angel which redeemed me from all evil. What a difference. What happened between Genesis 47.9 and Genesis 48.15? I'll tell you, it's a different perspective on life. And these two estimates... They differ greatly according to handfuls on purpose. I agree with that. The first is doleful. The, there's a spirit of melancholy about it. It's a complaint. How illogical. If the days were evil, was it not a good thing that they were but a few? The secret is just this. In the former, there's nothing about God. It's all about Jacob. In the latter, we notice a great deal more about God than Jacob. That's the contrast. Isn't that beautiful? Isn't that beautiful? To see the difference God makes, and it's testified to here by Jacob's own mouth. It's all about Jacob in Genesis 47, verse number 9. God's left out. It's doleful, it's complaining, it's unreasonable, it's illogical. It's all about God in Genesis 48, verse 15. He says, the God who, who fed me. That's the God who pastured me, the God who shepherded me. It's the same word shepherd, and many of the commentaries will point that out. The angel which hath redeemed me, the angel, who is that? Well, there's multiple times where we can look at the life of Jacob and see uh, there's a reference there to, to the Lord Jesus Christ, the pre-incarnate appearance of the Lord Jesus Christ, the angel of the Lord. And so when he talks from God's perspective, it's all about being triumphant through the Lord. It's about gratefulness and thankfulness. It's about being sensible and having your senses right and being sober in your thinking. It's about logical. It makes sense when we have God in our lives and when He's part of everything. Amen? And so, 
as you look down on this life, isn't that kind of the, the paradox that we see? When, when I look at how weak I am and how frail I am, I say, Lord, it's not much here. There's nothing but trouble everywhere I look. But then when I get my eyes on God, I see all that He's done. And I look back and I observe what He's done in my life. And I'm just so thankful. And I say, I wouldn't be where I am without God. I am what I am by the grace of God. And it's all because of what the Lord did for me. And He gets all the glory and all the praise. Now, as we look at verses 5 and 6, we see that they're preparing for a gift of an inheritance and uh, now thy two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh. Well, now I'm saying it like the biblical writer did, didn't I? <laughs> Ephraim and Manasseh, not Manasseh and Ephraim. It's Ephraim and Manasseh. Which were born unto thee in the land of Egypt before I came unto thee in Egypt. I've already mentioned all that. Notice this word, mine. That's kind of selfish of Jacob. That's a bad word at our house, especially with two-year-olds. You'll laugh in a minute when it sinks in. <laughs> Yeah, we don't say that at our house without consequences. <laughs> and so, uh, here Jacob is, you know, he's, I don't know, is he regressing? Sometimes uh, sometimes you go through that stage again where you're out of diapers for a long time in your life and then you wind up back in them when you're older. I, I don't think that's what's happening here. I think what we're seeing is a formal process of adoption. And there are documents that attest to this, uh, whether you go to the laws of Hammurabi or uh, other extra-biblical things. There's ancient Near Eastern texts that talk about uh, laws of the day and how to handle uh, things were done uh, orally, and so this would be an oral transmission. This, this would be just like going down to the courthouse and signing over custody. Okay, This would be uh, Jacob saying, they're mine, I have adopted them. So now you see why I say in this passage of double blessing, this double portion, we have an adoption happening. So Jacob has taken them in as his own and said, they are mine. Those sons that you have, they are mine. And Jacob adopts them. And I think about how, you know, I didn't do anything to deserve it, but when I came through Jesus Christ, who is my Joseph in a sense, and saved me like Joseph saved the world of his day, Jesus Christ saves, the, saves all who will call upon him, through that, you know, my father was able to say, adopted, I accept you in the beloved. And what a blessed truth of that, that is, because now all the inheritance that was in Christ and that was, that was to be bequeathed to him, that kingdom promise and, and everything that God has through Christ, read Ephesians and go look at the inheritance that's promised to the saints that one day we'll get to enjoy, not because Ephraim did anything, not because Manasseh did anything, no, it was all because of God's promises and what God said. And the father decided that he would make the transaction of adoption. And through Jesus Christ, I've been adopted. I'm adopted. Hallelujah. And we sing songs about that and what a truth that is. So, uh, aren't you thankful for what we have in Jesus Christ? And immediately on the heels of that, we're back down in this sorrowful world again because Jacob just can't, can't forget what happened as he was leaving, he was headed back down to, to be in the promised land. And the woman that he loved so much and worked so hard in his life to be able to be with, and the, the, the mother that gave him Joseph and Benjamin, Rachel died there in Ephrata. And he ends this part right here, back in the sorrows of life, not forgetting those and I think that we can even learn some things about that. You know, James says, Is any of you married? Let him sing songs. Is any afflicted? Uh, let him mourn. Let him, and prayer. And, and so, yeah, it, it's one of those things. How can you be 
how can you be sorrowful and joyful all at the same time? It's a biblical thing that has to transpire and occur because you have the strength of the Lord in you, and yet there's things that still pain you about this life. And Jacob says, you know, I'm, I'm, it's just going to be sweeter when I get to heaven. You know, there's so much more to go, go to heaven for. There's an old gospel song that sings that. I have much more to go to heaven for today than I did yesterday. And the longer we live down here, the more we have up there waiting for us, uh, hopefully and prayerfully. And, uh, you know, Jacob here talks about Bethlehem, and I think it was J. Bird McGee in his commentary pointed out uh, the difference of that Bethlehem means to Jacob as to what it means to us. We think about Bethlehem, and we start singing Christmas songs, amen? Oh, little town of Bethlehem. Jacob thinks about Bethlehem, and he thinks about a tomb. He thinks about a grave that's there. And I got to visit Rachel's tomb in Bethlehem. They actually let us into the walls. It's a Palestinian city, and that means it's controlled by the Arabs. And, and I mean, it's it's locked up tight like a prison. And there's, you know, guns and barbed wire everywhere and razor wire. And you're not getting in without special permission. And uh, it was it was quite a quite an experience because we went in. Of course, you have to you have to wear your head covering if you're a man. And so um, I saw the the yarmulke that we had there on the piano the other day, it reminded me of my, my time there, uh, being able to go in to the, to the tomb of Rachel and to see him today, still caught up in worshiping a monument and praying to, to, a, to a monument when they miss you know, what happened even greater at Bethlehem and that Jesus was born and our Savior came uh, through there in Ephrata. But we went into the, to the tomb of Rachel and... Uh, and we were down the corridors, and they were so nice to us. They offered us coffee, and it was some of the best coffee you can get out there, by the way. And they walked us down this hall, and there was a, a hallway with portraits on it about Israel's history. And, and uh, our guide translated for us, and the ladies that were on site there started telling us about all the stories. And they were all Bible stories. I could read about them in my Old Testament. They walked us right down the hallway and said this and this and this, all about the history of Israel leading up to Rachel and her death and her burial there as she was giving birth to Benjamin, sorrowing over life's griefs. What did, what did Bethlehem mean to Jacob? What does it mean to us? You know, I think there's uh, something to be said for that because this sorrowful world, once we get our eyes off of that, we can see that even in the midst of a place of sorrow like Bethlehem, God brings hope and He brings life. And where Rachel died, our Savior was born. And uh, we can come through Him to heaven. Bountiful blessings. Secondly, not only do we see the, uh, the, the, the adoption aspect of it, a double portion adopted and accepted in verses 1 through 7, we secondly tonight will take note of a bountiful blessing being shepherded by my Redeemer. He is my Redeemer. And that's Jacob's words. And I claim to those as well. Job said it this way, I know my Redeemer liveth. Do you know that your Redeemer, is He your Redeemer? You claim Him. There's a time of warm embrace, verses 8 through 12. Uh, we pick up the story here. And Israel beheld Joseph's sons and said, Is he getting senile here? What did he ask Joseph? Who are these kids? I don't know who they are. Well, wait a minute, you were just talking about Ephraim and Manasseh. Who are these kids? I don't, again, I don't think that's what we have happening here, so let's read carefully. And understand this. Uh, this would be. I think there was a commentator that pointed this out. I can't remember who it was, but he pointed it out. It would be more like, uh, you know, when I officiate a wedding, I have the bride and groom. They come down the aisle before the altar, and it's a formal proceeding. 
and uh, the bride enters, and she's usually brought in. Typically, the traditional thing to do is have the, the father of the bride come with the bride down the aisle, and they stop just short of the altar, and I, as the officiant, will ask something along these lines. Who giveth this woman to be married to this man? Do I know who she is? I would hope so. You know, as a pastor, I do premarital counseling with all the couples that I, I perform weddings for, and I have requirements. I hope that I remember her name. I'm not getting senile as a pastor when I say, who gives this woman to be married to this? Jacob's not getting senile here. It's a formal proceeding because he's getting ready to pass the inheritance to them just like Isaac did and Jacob snuck in there and took it from Esau. Remember that whole account and that ordeal? When Isaac's eyes were down? Now Jacob says, who are these? So this is a very serious moment. Uh, there's a solemnness about it, but there is a time of warm embrace. And uh, he says, Who are these? And Joseph said unto his father, These are my sons whom God hath given me in this place. And he said, Bring them, I pray thee unto me, and I will bless them. Now the eyes of Israel were dim for age. Reminds us a lot about Isaac there, doesn't it? For that he could not see. He could not see, and yet he says, The God who has caused me to see uh, your seed. Interesting how that plays out here. His eyes are dim, he can't see. He brought them near unto him, and he kissed them and embraced them. And Israel said unto Joseph, Who said to Joseph? Israel. You're paying attention. Israel said to Joseph, I had not thought to see thy face. He can't see, but he's saying, I didn't think I'd see your face. I think there's more going on here. I think the Holy Spirit is is uh, duly involved in what's transpiring right before our eyes. I didn't think I'd see your face. And lo, God hath showed me also thy seed. Not just you, Joseph, but I've been able to see your sons, my sons. Joseph brought them out from between his knees. Uh, there's some significance there to the proceedings as well uh, with the motions that are being given. And he bowed himself with his face to the earth. How awkward to an Egyptian would this look? Here is Vice President Joseph. Here is uh, Prime Minister Joseph. Here is the one that all Egypt should be paying homage to. And he's before his dad bowing and giving him the respect and honor do his dad. I think we've lost that in our generation quite a bit. And we see the unfolding here as Jacob continues uh, to bless. And uh, Joseph took them both, Ephraim in his right hand, toward Israel's left hand, and Manasseh in his left hand toward Israel's right hand, and brought them near unto him, and Israel stretched out his right hand and laid it upon Ephraim. Now, even if you can't see, I don't know how much taller Ephraim would be from Manasseh, how many years apart they are from each other, but uh, Joseph is kind of getting concerned here, and he says, maybe that is getting a little senile. He can't, he can't figure out which one's... Dead. And it actually... It displeased, it was evil to Joseph, is the literal rendering there. It displeased Joseph, and Joseph is going to try to correct his dad. It's almost like he grabs his arm and says, No, no, dad, you got it wrong. And, and Jacob's like, No. And twice he corrects Joseph and says, I know exactly what I'm doing. And so you see, even in his 
last breaths, Jacob is still a man of control and still is ordering things. But I think here, things have finally begun to solidify that we read about all the way back with, uh, with Rebecca. Prophecy was given to her with the twins that were in her womb. You remember that? That was prophecy. And it was prophesied that the elder should serve the younger. And who was that? Jacob should rule over Esau. And here he acknowledges that's the plan of God. And you trace it all the way back, all the way back to the garden. And it's a theme that if you ever want a good study to do, just go through the scriptures and see how many times the younger is blessed and how that works out. One of the great characters of Greek literature is uh, Tiresias of Thebes and the blind prophet whom Odysseus consults in the course of his return to Ithaca from Troy. Uh, Tiresias lacks physical sight, but his blindness to things about him is compensated by his gift of seeing things to come. And uh, there's something like that, I think, happening here in the final, final chapters. Jacob is not able to physically see, but spiritually he's being led by the Holy Spirit. And as he crosses his hands and blesses Ephraim, the younger, he knows exactly what he's doing. And there's some things that are happening here that uh, could have been different. They could have been different. Joseph has now replaced Reuben as firstborn. Ephraim and Manasseh have now officially replaced Simeon and Levi. So who now becomes the firstborn of Leah? the recognized union between Jacob and Leah would be Judah. The lion of the tribe of Judah. So now, where Rachel only birthed two children to Jacob, she should have only really had two tribes, now she winds up with three, which will be at least one more tribe than both of the handmaids. Dan and Asher... Gad and Naphtali, two tribes, two tribes. Rachel will have three tribes. Leah will have the remaining tribes. But the Savior will come through Judah. Joseph now is in the place of the firstborn, meaning he is the one that Jacob deems eligible for, the double portion, the double blessing. This time of of, uh, embrace gives way to the passing of the torch of faith. In Genesis 48, verse 13, we read, And Joseph took them both, Ephraim in his right hand and toward Israel's left, and, and Manasseh in his left toward Israel's right, and Israel stretched out his right hand, verse 14, and laid it upon Ephraim's head, who was the younger, and his left hand upon Manasseh's head, guiding his hands wittingly, for Manasseh was the firstborn. And he blessed Joseph and said, so before Joseph can even realize what's going on, words are already coming out of his mouth, and he's saying, The God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac did what? Walk. Enoch walked with God and he was not, for God took him. Jacob knew his granddaddy and his dad had walked with God. And that was where the promises of God came from. They walked before God. That has the idea of uh, a shepherd you know, allowing sheep to go on a little bit ahead and the shepherd's making sure that they're protected and watched over. They walked. With God, they walked before God. And then in the very next statement, he says, the God which fed me, which shepherded me, that has the idea of our good shepherd leading us to good pasturage and going before us. God goes 
God goes behind us. He goes before us. He goes beside us. He goes with us. He is our God. And Jacob is acknowledging that, passing on the torch of faith here. Before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac did walk, the God which shepherded or fed me all my life long unto this day. Hey, I, I remember a young Jacob probably being pretty hungry by the time he came to lose. By the time he got uh, you know, on his journey up to Badanaram, he might have been wondering, man, what am I going to eat? I don't have anything but a staff in my hand. He remembers, God fed me all the days of my life. All that nice pottage he was able to make for Esau, yeah, that came from God too. And in his wanderings, and then up there with Laban, and all that happened with that, and through all that two decades of his life, he said, God's the one that fed me. God's the one that blessed me. It was his hand that did it. Look back over and you'll see. Uh, you'll never see the righteous forsaken, nor his seed begging bread. The psalmist attested to that, and I did too last Sunday, if you remember those words. When Jacob, you know, I think it was F.B. Meyer in his book on Jacob, Israel, a prince with God, the story of Jacob retold, he said this, Remember, nothing can separate you from the love of God. When Jacob reviewed these dark passages of his life from the serene heights of his dying bed, he saw, as he had never seen it before, that God had shepherded him all his life long. His angel had redeemed him from all evil. And we do not realize this at the time, but there is never an experience in life without the watch of that unsleeping shepherd eye. Never a peril without the interposition of that untiring shepherd hand. The hand of the good physician is ever on the pulse as we pass through the operation. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? Nay, these things may never sever God from our eyes. These things, excuse me, may sever God from our eyes. I didn't think that. I didn't read that right. These things may sever God from our eyes and shut away the realization of His love, but they cannot make Him cease to love us or hide us from Him or separate us from Him. So uh, F.B. Myro's words are still true today. Take heart. You who are descending into the dark valley of shadow, the Good Shepherd is going at your side. Though you see Him not, His rod and His staff shall comfort you. Yea, His own voice shall speak comfortably to you. Fear not. Fear not. If you've ever read uh, Stories of a Sheepdog, Philip Keller's book on Psalm 23, you know exactly what he describes sheep as being in there. Uh, just uh, poor, pitiful creatures that need a shepherd to watch over them. How frail we are in light of how good God is. And so we learn from Jacob here that when he relies on his own strength, it's, it's a few days and full of trouble, but when he's relying on God, he's the shepherd who watches over. And having learned that he can't be his own shepherd and he's tired of shepherding his own life as he did for many decades, now he observes how God protects and watches over and guides and he points his grandchildren to the faith in that shepherd, his redeeming angel, who redeemed him. Now, if we think about his journey, there was a time when God himself showed up to a man that was getting ready to kill Jacob. And Jacob feared for his life on more than one occasion. And the angel of God stood in the way and redeemed him. To, to, to redeem means to buy back, right? Bought back from destruction. And uh, there's a whole study on redemption that we don't have time for. But notice the role reversal that happens. The younger over the elder, Ephraim. 
is first, even though he's second. The last shall be first, and the first shall be last. He blessed them that day, saying, And thee shall Israel bless, saying, God make thee as Ephraim and Manasseh, and he said Ephraim before Manasseh. What do we know about Ephraim? Uh, we know Ephraim for his childhood. We know Ephraim for his descendants. But between those two extremes, precious little is told of his life. But because he was given precedence over his older brother when both were small and unproven, we can only surmise that God picked him out for a reason. Uh, this author went on to point out his father Joseph was well situated in Egypt. He made homes there for his brothers and his father. But the pilgrimage of Jacob, Joseph's father, was coming to an end. He asked to see his grandsons before he died, so Joseph brought Ephraim and Manasseh to him. The boys were small enough to stand between their father's knees. When Jacob blessed Ephraim before Manasseh, Joseph told him he made a mistake, but the first blessing should go to the older brother, Manasseh. Jacob, who was almost blind but knew what God wanted, told his son he made no mistake. So we can assume then that Ephraim became a worthy man lived a faithful life. It is an assumption, I understand that, but I think it's a valid assumption. What of his descendants? What of Ephraim's descendants? Well, how about Joshua? Jacob talks about the fullness of Israel here. How much fuller could the reputation of Ephraim be than the day Joshua stood and said, Thou son, stand still. The whole world knew about Joshua. Where did he come from? Ephraim tribe that would be the first in the promised land. The tribe that would have the captain at the front to go in and take what God had promised. That would be the tribe of Ephraim. And so, Joshua, the son of Nun, who was renamed by Moses, by the way, to be Joshua. His name was Oshea, but uh, he was used by God in a mighty way. Successor to Moses, one of Israel's greatest leaders, that we study about, came from Ephraim. And so God. it seems that God knew what He was doing when He was moving Jacob to do this. There's a promised return, and we're done. A promised return where faith becomes sight, difficult departure looms, there's the parting of death. In verse 20, Jacob says these words, I die. This made me think of what Jesus told His disciples. He says, I'm going away, fellas. Ladies, I'm going to have to depart. But it's expedient for me that I go away. For if I go not away, he said the Comforter could not come. Here, Jacob's doing something similar. He tells Joseph and Ephraim and Manasseh and everybody else that's listening with an earshot, he says, I, I die. I'm, I'm going away. But God will be with you. And there's, there's a comfort that comes from that. As we get older physically, our souls can grow strong and our desire to go to heaven can radiate and we can yearn for that land over yonder. But as we remember what we leave behind, let's not forget we need to leave the comfort that God goes with us. The preacher said the conclusion of the whole matter was what? Fear God and keep His commandments. For this is the whole duty of man. As we fear Him, we look around us and we say, I don't, this world is just too much trouble. I'm ready to go home and be with God. But we leave a faith to those that are coming behind us. God shall be with you. Good old Jacob can no more be with Joseph, Spurgeon said, for his labor, for his hour had come to die. But he left his son without anxiety, for he said in confidence, God shall be with you. 
and we leave that promise of faith and comfort. When good old Jacob blessed the seed from Joseph's loins that came, he crossed his withered hands and to said, and God has done the same. Crosses each day with trials hot the Christian's path has been. And who has found a happy lot without a cross between? Not so, my father, oft we say. This pain, this grief remove. Too blind to fathom wisdom's way or think. Tis sent in love. A gift above measure. Now this is a verse that is intriguing to me. As chapter 48 closes, you read in verse 22. After Jacob says, I die, God's going to be with you. And the promise is He's going to take you back to the land of your fathers. You're going back home someday. Don't let it trouble you. God's going to go with you all the way. Look at verse 22. Moreover, on top of that, not only are you going back to the land of promise, and you're getting out of Egypt someday, but look what I'm going to do here. Moreover, I have given to thee one portion above thy brethren, which I took out of the hand of the Amorite with my sword and with my bow. You remember reading about that in the life of Jacob? I don't. When did that happen? <laughs> Commentaries are all over the place on this verse. I think much of what we would say would simply be assumption. Maybe there's a story that Moses didn't tell us about Jacob, that there was a time where he did fight with his sword and bow against Amorites. Maybe some of the other uh, linguists are correct when they're talking about Amorites being the Hivites as representative term for all the land. You know, kind of when we were talking about the Moabites and how could the Moabites be the Ishmaelites and are they two different people? No, this is talking about a larger group of people. I'm an American, but I'm also a Coloradan, okay? Uh, an Amorite could also be a Hivite. In that sense, they were the dwellers of Canaan. The sin of the Amorites is not yet full. The sins of the dwellers of Canaan are not yet full. God would tell Israel... Uh, to hold off. It's not time for them to go back yet. So what happened here? I think there's also good precedent and a play on words, if nothing else is a play on words. And I do uh, take the, I think it's the easiest way to understand it, the way Fruchtenbaum put it in his book. And I think he's got some good things to say there in his Bible commentary about this. What intrigues me about this is that the word portion is this is the Hebrew word shechem. And it literally means a ridge top or a hill somewhere. So this is a, this is a place that Jacob had possession of. Uh, the only place we're told about he bought is in the book of Joshua, where he bought a portion of land like Abraham did from the children of Heth. Uh, Jacob bought a little piece of ground, but I don't know that that's the same thing he's talking about here. This is really interesting. One commentator, uh, it was Fruchtenbaum, who said the sword and the bow are talking about Simeon and Levi. And this was that whole mess back in chapter 34 surrounding Dinah. Remember all that mess? Well, that, if you take that perspective, I think it's a good way to go because doesn't it kind of bring out the providence of God and working good out of evil and all that mess? Now what Simeon and Levi did is going to come full circle and wind up, if you take that position, it's going to wind up with Joseph. The son promised. And isn't it interesting one day our Savior is going to walk through and say, I must needs go through Samaria. And he's going to land on a place where a little well is that Jacob dug someday. And Jacob's well is there. And he's going to talk to a Samaritan woman about how to go to heaven. 
the greatest soul winner that ever walked the face of the earth is going to show her the truth about Messiah, and she's going to find the waters of eternal life right there in that place. Could that be where Jacob took this land with his sword and his boat? Could be. The land of the Amorites, the well at Sychar, and the land of Samaria. Isn't this where Joseph's going to one day be laid to rest? I think there's good, good precedent for seeing this as being Shechem and in that area where Sychar is. Nevertheless, this shows us that, um, boy, he just kind of pulls this out of nowhere, doesn't he? I didn't read about any of this in his life. It might just surprise you when you get to heaven. The good things that God has for you. It hasn't entered into the heart of man, the things that He's prepared for us. All the sorrows, all the trouble, all the toil, all the persecution we go through down here, one day our Father is going to say, oh yeah, by the way, i got a little something special for you. This came through toil, and this came through you know, a grievous circumstance, but now you can enjoy the blessing of it. And it's yours, it's yours for all eternity. Here it is. Here's the blessing. What a passage that brings us to a fuller understanding as Jacob is getting ready to depart this life. He passes on his faith to his grandchildren and let us learn from him on how important it is to leave a legacy behind, a legacy of faith. He had received it from his father and his grandfather and now he leaves it for the generations to come behind and life goes on one generation at a time and God preserves his word to every generation and every generation builds upon or tears down and destroys what the previous generation leaves behind. And a legacy that can be thought of as a kind of inheritance is usually, you know, we think of money and cash and those kind of things, physical assets. Much more important is to pass on the promises of God like Jacob's doing here to the coming generations. And what a responsibility we have, do we not, in this regard, as leading others, and passing on to faithful men who will teach others also, passing that baton of discipleship to them with humility, with gratitude for what God has done all along the way, acknowledging His good hand on us, looking for the promises to come, and leaving that legacy of faith, not leaving a bad example.